Just a couple of things here real quick. I want to I continue talking about finances. If you're, uh, if you're in junior high or high school, those folks are heading right out these uh, back doors here, going straight across the hallway to the uh, youth area, the, the living room out there. They're doing that right now. So if you're part of that, we'd love to have you uh, join us there. We're gonna, uh, I'm going to continue talking about uh, money here and there. Just as we start the year out, I want to encourage you uh, to give faithfully, to give regularly, to uh, not do it under compulsion, uh, but to give proportionately to what God has given you to steward for Him. Um, we, are, uh, we continue to be uh, a church that is growing and multiplying and, and things like that, and so uh, finances are a must for that. And so we're looking to rebuild in some reserves that we had that we went through at the end of this uh, last year. And so that would be super helpful if you can be a part of that. If you don't feel like doing that, as I, I normally say here, please don't give. Just come and receive and uh, allow the Lord to bring that desire about in your life. This is not something that you should feel under compulsion to give. This is just out of what God has given you, we invite you to give back to him uh, through giving at the, the local church. Secondly is this. Uh, we have a, uh, an all-members meeting that is coming up on February 16th. And it's really, it, we really uh, struggled with calling it a members meeting. We wanted to call it a membership party because basically we're, uh, we're hanging out together. It'll be right after service, and uh, we'll have some good food. We'll talk about what God's been doing, um, uh, how, how we can get on board with that, and so forth. And so what that is for, that is for people who have gone through the membership class um, and so we have a membership class that is coming up here very shortly. If I can, yeah, all members meeting is on February 16th. The membership class is on the 26th. So that's uh, next week. So if you've been here for six weeks uh, and you would like to be a part of that, maybe you haven't been to basic yet, which is the first stop for, uh, for people who are looking to get involved at Outward Church, that's okay. Um, if you want to go ahead and go to the membership class, we'll just work with you on that and get you up to speed pretty quick. That's not, not a huge thing to overcome there. Um, in any case, we'd love to have you become a member so that you can come to the February 16th all-members party, and that would be awesome. Just a, a brief overview of what membership at Outward Church is. Uh, there's a class, and basically we just... Uh, tell you what Outward Church is about, what our theology is, try to scare you with the dirty little secrets of what we believe about God and actually what the Bible says, but uh, <laughs> that's another thing. Uh, in any case, uh, so th that's the class. Then we'd have you meet with an elder and uh, walk through just your agreement with who we are, uh, where you are in Christ, whether you've been baptized or not. Um, we'd have you sign the, the covenant. And then we also have an annual renewal. Uh, which means that, you know, a lot of churches just build up members and, you know, more members and more members and more members. And then people kind of trail off and stop coming to church or go to other churches. And so what we do every year is we, we basically go back to all of our members and we say, we're asking you to commit this year to be a part of what we're doing. And so what we're really calling you to is what our kind of vision is, which is to love Jesus and live outward. And loving Jesus means we're committing to his story, his people, and his rule. And then this idea of living outward is we give, we serve, and we speak. And so when you sign that covenant 
uh, renewal, what you're basically saying is you're saying, I'm recommitting myself again to being all about the story of Jesus, to being connected with his people, to be living in obedience to Jesus, to giving faithfully, to serving faithfully, and to speaking the gospel to other people. And we want to help you along the way. So membership isn't like the final destination of people who are Christians. It is uh, really the people that we focus on the most are our, are our members, and we basically say, okay, these are the people that have committed themselves to this, and so we want to make sure that we're building into your life and that you're building into our life and that we are being discipled together by Jesus Christ. And so it's an invitation into really becoming wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ at Outward Church. Membership is not the thing necessarily that makes disciples. At Outward Church, that's what we do in order to keep track of who's here and who's not. We have a lot of people that are visiting. We love you, but we really focus on our members. I want to encourage you to be at uh, the membership class. You can sign up out at Connect Central. Okay, now... Here's, here's the deal today. Today might be a little bit different for you. It might be a little bit different for me. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I am going to try to show you something that maybe you haven't seen before if you've read the Bible. If you haven't read the Bible, then this is a great time for you to be here. And uh, so I want to communicate this to you. When we look at the world and we understand what's going on in the world, a lot of times we can kind of ask ourselves, oh, what, what in the world, why in the world do we need Jesus? Why do we need Jesus uh, in our lives? What is it about him that causes us to, uh, to, to, to need his salvation? Why do we actually need him to, to come down? Why do we need him to be a part of our lives? And you may not be asking that question as you walk in here. In fact, I, I think that there may be many of you who are not asking that question. There's a number of reasons why you came to church today. Someone invited you. And you don't really believe any of this stuff. And that's okay. We're so glad that you're here. Or maybe you've just been a part of the church for a long time. And you're, you're somebody who just is not really connected with the idea of Jesus necessarily because you've gotten involved in a social club. That's essentially what this is. It's turned into a social club. Now, we're all guilty of that. You know, we get our friends. We find people that we enjoy hanging out with. And it's a, it's a great thing. However, what that doesn't do is it's not encouraging you toward what Jesus really wants to bring about in your life. Now, the book of Luke is, uh, is Luke. As we've said in weeks past, I want to remind you of this. He's writing a letter to his friend Theophilus, and he's trying to explain some things to him. And so every time we read a passage, we have to ask ourselves this. What is Luke trying to communicate to Theophilus? What is he trying to say to him? And then as a result, we can take from that, like, what is Luke trying to say to us? And so when you look at the book of Luke, oftentimes what you see is that you, you some, and, and really some of the Gospels, uh, I, I would say most of the Gospels are, are this way, and that is that you can read stories and they seem like they're out of place. It can feel like you're kind of reading this story and then there's this story and then there's this story. In, in the, the series of scripture that I want to share with you this morning, uh, one of them is one that we've already covered, which is Luke chapter 3, verse uh, 22 and follow. I'm sorry, 21 and, and following. And that's talking about the baptism of Jesus Christ. And then immediately after that, there's a genealogy, which are really fun to preach through, by the way. There's a genealogy. And then the third thing is it's talking about the temptation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, what we oftentimes see is this, is that what we skip over the genealogy. We talk about the baptism, uh, which is uh, Trinitarian. We talk about the Trinity. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, then we go to the genealogy, and the genealogy is kind of like, yeah, there's this guy, and there's that guy, and then, then there's this. And then we go on to the temptation of Jesus Christ, and we say this. We say, because Jesus was tempted, and he was able to overcome this temptation by quoting scripture. Therefore, you and I can overcome temptation by quoting scripture. Now, that may be well and true, and I, and I think that it is, but it's not the most important thing that Luke is trying to communicate. And so I want to show that to you this morning and try to keep your uh, attention in and through that. So here we go. Uh, so last week, as I said, uh, John the Baptist is preaching to a bunch of Jewish people. These are God's chosen people, oftentimes called the children of Israel or the sons of God in that sense. And he's preaching to them and he's saying, hey, you've got to be baptized because you're sinful. And what he's saying to them is he's saying, listen, I know that you think that you were raised in the right family and that being raised in that family gets you to a point where you have relationship with God. And we talked about this last week, and that is that regardless of how you grew up, no matter what school that you go to, no matter where you are in life, like your pedigree does not define uh, whether you're connected with God or not. That has nothing to do with it. And it's actually a hindrance to these people. And so John the Baptist says, don't, don't say that we're uh, Abraham's children and so therefore we don't need to be baptized. He's saying, you are sinful and I am sinful and we must repent. And so he's inviting these people who think that they're already perfected when in reality they know they're not. He's inviting them to be baptized. He's inviting sinful people to come and say, I realize that God is not pleased with my sin, and I want to repent for that and receive forgiveness. And baptism was a picture of that as a result. And so it says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 21 of Luke, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus goes to be baptized, and Luke really just kind of shortens this story, as opposed to the other Gospels. He really shortens it, and he doesn't really give anything. What he says is, he says, the Holy Spirit comes down. He descends on him. And then there's this voice. So right here we have a picture of what the Trinity is. Trinity, the word Trinity, you will not find in the Bible. However, the scriptures present God as a Trinity, a three-part person in essence. And so what it is, is this, is that we have God the Father, which is the voice coming from heaven. We have God the Son who is being baptized, and we have God the Holy Spirit who is descending in the form of a dove. And this Holy Spirit is coming down on him. And the Father says, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So John the Baptist's baptism for Israel, for God's people, is saying, I realize that God is not pleased with my sin. However, Jesus' baptism... And the voice of, uh, of God coming from heaven is saying this, but this one I am pleased with. This, this is the one that I'm pleased with. This is the one who's done it right. This is the one. This is the one who's done this. Now, what is he, what is he saying there? He is proclaiming his solidarity with us, according to Michael Wilcock. 
and at the same time his distinction from the rest of humanity. Here is Jesus who is perfectly obedient and he is entering into the baptismal waters that basically say, I repent, and yet Jesus doesn't need to repent and yet he fully uh, allows himself to be baptized and it is essentially saying this, I'm identifying with you. Luke would later quote Isaiah chapter 53 which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was numbered with you and me in the midst of our sin. He enters into it even though he doesn't have to. Even though that's, that's not what he needs, he comes alongside of you and he experiences what you experience. And Jesus enters into this baptism and God the Father says, all of these others I am not pleased with. The children of Israel who were supposed to do my will and yet have not done my will, yet this is the one that I am pleased with. You are my beloved son. Now, next series of verses here. Verse 23. Then it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now that's a reference to the reality that Jesus was not a physical son of Joseph, but he was a legal son of Joseph. So legally he is Joseph's son, but he's not a physical son of him. And so it's kind of referring to that right there. As was supposed, that's what's referring to that. Joseph the son of of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Maphet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph the son of Mathathias, or Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Yoda. So, it's, it's, it's like Spanish. It's like Spanish. The J is, a, is actually an H. I don't know if you knew that. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. Okay, so here, here's the thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you for obvious reasons, but just thought I'd get through that little joke right there. But uh, <laughs> you get the picture. It's a genealogy, and it is not interesting at all. Almost, almost, almost. Because like, I think it's the first 18 names right here are not names that anybody knows anything about. There's a bunch of names here that people don't, don't know anything about. We don't know where they came from necessarily. However, this is what Luke in his uh, investigation has found it, are, are these names. But what we see here is this genealogy. And Luke says, okay, I'm going to tell you that Jesus gets baptized and, and God speaks and the Holy Spirit comes down and he says, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he begins to go into this genealogy. Why does he do that? It seems out of place. Well, when we're reading scripture, one of the things that we have to ask is this, is that when you see something that seems out of place, you have to ask yourself, why in the world is this there? Why in the world does, does God put this in his word through Luke to tell us about this genealogy? Well, we got to look a little bit closer. In verse 31, it mentions David. So he is of the Davidic line, which prophecy has stated that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come through David. He is going to be the royal line of David. And who, else, who is David? Well, David is a dearly beloved king of Israel. 
He was an incredible warrior. There's incredible stories about him in the Old Testament. But David's also the guy who slept with his best friend's wife, or I don't know if it was his best friend, but one of his good friend's wife. And then when he found out that she was pregnant, he went and had him killed. Put him out in battle, had him killed. And then you look a little bit further and you see, um, you see Perez, the son of Judah. And we talked about, we talked about this uh, a few months ago as we were in the book of Genesis. And it basically talks about this guy Judah. And this guy Judah is on a business trip. And he decides, you know what? I, I think I want some company. And so he thinks he's hiring a prostitute, a cult prostitute. And so he sleeps with this young girl. Come to find out he unwittingly slept with his daughter-in-law. Just a really sordid story. And Perez is the result of that. But Jesus is in the line of Judah. And then we look and it says the son of Jacob. And who's Jacob? Jacob is the son of Isaac. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is this cheater who cheated his brother out of his birthright. He's this guy who's just a wily dude who just has some real problems, and yet God uses him powerfully. God uses all of these men powerfully. And then you look a little bit further, and you see Abraham. And who's Abraham? Abraham's the guy who starts this family. God comes to him and says, in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And it's pointing forward to Jesus. It's pointing forward to Jesus, the coming of the Messiah that's going to come through uh, Abraham and through his seed, through his family. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And yet Abraham is a pretty messed up guy. Because he couldn't wait for God to finally enact his promise. And so instead of waiting for God, he takes his wife's handmaiden through her permission and he sleeps with her and he has another child that ends up creating all kinds of problems for them. And so that's Abraham. Skip to verse 36. It says, uh, the sons of Canaan, the sons of Ar uh, Arphasad, and the son of Shem, the son of Noah. Who's Noah? Noah, you might know the story. He built an ark. God told him to build an ark. He said he's going to destroy the earth. And so Noah obeys. Noah does what God tells him to do. And so Noah obeys, and then he gets to the end of his ministry, and then he makes some wine, and he gets trashed in his tent by himself, has himself a little frat party, uh, gets naked for some reason, and then creates this problem with his other son. Seems like some pretty messed up people. And then verse 38 says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, Seth is the third son of Adam, who's the first human. And Seth was born after Cain and Abel, after Cain killed Abel. So all, just, all kinds of brokenness going on here, isn't it? And then you get to Adam, who's the first human. And though he is in paradise with his wife, he chooses to disobey God by believing the lie from the devil through the snake in the garden. So here's Adam. He's in this incredible paradise. He's not hungry. There's all kinds of food everywhere. God has provided everything that he needs. And yet he listens to the serpent along with his wife. And he chooses to eat from the fruit of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. 
just as God had told him not to. And he destroys everything. And so when you look at that, you see this, this what it says here, it says, uh, Enos, uh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It's kind of striking that it says the son of God, Adam, the son of God, because Jesus is the son of God. But here's the thing. Adam was a son of God as well. Adam was a son of God as well. See, Adam was birthed, in a sense, created by God, the God of the universe. And he was given everything that he could possibly need. He had perfect relationship with God. And yet, he took that perfect relationship, that perfect imaging of God, and he distorted it through his own sin. And what happens as a result of that is because of Adam's sin, everyone down the line is sinful. And I've just listed for you all of those reasons. That Adam was sinful, and then his sons were sinful, and then his sons were sinful, and then his sons were sinful. And it just goes on down the line till you see the reality of there is just brokenness here. Now think about this for just a second. We're just talking about the baptism of Jesus Christ and how Israel, the Jews, were sitting there saying, we don't need to be baptized, we're sons of Abraham. And he's like, the heck you are. You guys are messed up and you need to repent. And he says, but this one, Jesus, this is the one that I'm pleased with. This is the one that I'm pleased with. And then we go on. And, and, and so what is Luke doing? He's, show, he's showing us the need for Jesus. Do you see all these people? Yes, he's showing us that Jesus is uh, legally, legally in the line of David. But he's also showing us something else. He's showing us that Jesus is inherently connected to humanity. He is in this line. He is a part of us. He's not just a part of the Jews. This religion of Christianity isn't just for the Jews. Jesus isn't just a movement leader of the Jews. He is a movement leader of all of humanity. It's traced all the way back to Adam, who was supposed to be the son of God, and yet he distorts that image. And as a result, every single one of us have distorted that image through our disobedience. But then one comes, one, capital O, comes who is perfectly obedient, who is perfectly in line with what God wants him to do. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, God says of him. What is Luke trying to show us? He's trying to show us the true and the better son. The true and the better son. Go to chapter 4, verse 1 here. It says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Stop right there for a second. That's another hint that what Luke wants to draw our attention to is he, he's, he's weaving a, a thread through the middle of this passage. G the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus 
and blesses him for his ministry. The first verse of the genealogy section there says he's about 30 years old when he begins his ministry. He receives the Holy Spirit. He's about 30 years old when he begins his ministry. It picks up again, chapter 4, verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. So he's wanting to show us this. Returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Surprise, surprise, after 40 days. So here's Jesus. He's led by the Spirit, and he goes into the wilderness, which is typically a place where bad things happen, where demonic things are. And yet the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And it's not a short amount of time. It is a duration of 40 days. And there's a little bit of misunderstanding as to whether he was tempted by the devil the entire time. It seems like that's what Luke is saying here. Like for 40 days, he's tempted by the devil, and he was led there by the Holy Spirit. Just a side note here. Just because you're led by the Holy Spirit, just because you're hearing from God, just because you think that you're right with God does not mean that you will not experience temptation. Temptation is not a sign of you having done something wrong always. Temptation is is perhaps a sign that you're doing something right, that the Holy Spirit of God is in you and is a part of you, and, and, and that Satan wants to take you out of where you are at. So he's led by the Spirit, and it says, for 40 days... And what one commentator says is this, is he says, this is so incredibly interesting because here is Jesus and he's being tempted in the wilderness and he was hungry. The, the first Adam is in paradise. He's naked with his wife. They're enjoying this incredible paradise. They're enjoying food at every moment no matter what, and God gives them one rule and says, don't disobey me. And what happens? They disobey him. Here's Jesus, who is the second Adam, and he is in the wilderness. He's not in paradise. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. And for 40 days, he's being tempted persistently. He eats nothing, and he was very hungry. What's going to happen? Will he obey his father? Will he obey him? There's another story, and that is, uh, so we have the first Adam. Everything goes to crap, basically because of that. God gives a promise in Genesis 3.15. It's called the first gospel. It's the first time that God really iterates this idea that like, I'm going to send the Messiah. I'm going to send somebody through the seed of the woman. And that somebody is going to crush the serpent. And so it's, it's talking about that. And so then we get to Abraham. And Abraham is the one who it's coming through his line. And then it's going through David. And it's through his line that this Messiah is going to come. And what happens is this, is that God creates his people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He creates his people, and he sends, them, uh, he, he sends them out of Egypt, and they go through the Red Sea, and God provides all kinds of things for them, a pillar of cloud uh, during the daytime, a pillar of fire at night. 
God is like incredibly there with them in powerful ways. And then he says, I want you to go into this land. I want you to send spies into this land so that you can see what it's like. And then I want you to come back and then I want you to go overtake this land, overtake this wicked group of people that are essentially ISIS of their day. And God says, I want you to take them out and I want you to take their land. So the spies go in and they see what's, what's happening there and they come back and a number of them say, yeah, there's great food, there's awesome stuff, but these people are scary and we should not go in. And they rebel against the word of God. And so what happens? God says, I'm judging you because you refuse to obey me when it's difficult. You refuse to obey me when it seems like the odds are stacked against you. You refuse to obey me. And so what's going to happen is this, is that you are going to wander in the wilderness, key word there, in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that the spies were in that city. You're going to wander in the wilderness. God chooses to judge his people by leaving them in the wilderness for 40 days, and he provides food for them. What is Luke doing here? Luke is, is bringing up a number of things. Adam failed. Israel failed. And God judged them. And God sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. And so what is this Jesus? What is this guy going to do when he ends up full of the Holy Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days? He is really, really hungry. Will the second Adam fail like the first? Because I tell you what, that is exactly what Satan wants in this situation. Satan wants Jesus to go down. He wants to take out God's plan at the knees. And so it says in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I don't know if you've recognized this, but there's been three iterations of the son of God or, or reference to Jesus' sonship. The baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The genealogy, Adam, the son of God. And by default, Jesus, in that same line, is a son of God. So son of God, son of God. And here, Satan comes and says, if you are the son of God. Now, I, I just have to stop right here for just a second. When you're reading the Bible and you see stuff like this, you have to, you got to read it a number of times and you got to see, wait a minute, there's a pattern here. Luke is trying to tell Theophilus, he is the son of God. But wait, there's more. There's more coming here. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Michael Wilcox says this, the devil takes up the precise point established by chapter 3 and makes it the basis of his challenge. So you're the son of God, huh? So you're the son of God, huh? Oh, you're the one that's going to come take me out? It's like this bully that's been in the neighborhood for a long time, and he's beat up a lot of people. He's beat up a lot of people. And then finally, the Son of God moves into town. Son of God moves into town, and he doesn't look very big, but he's like the karate kid. I mean, Mr. Miyagi's been working with him for a while. Do you remember that, that movie? Nobody? No? No? Not you. Like, you weren't even born when it, was, when it came out, right? Movies exist. Movies exist. All right, whatever. 
All right. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, so that was totally off topic there. In any case, so probably blasphemous. So strike that from the record here. The son of God comes into town. And Satan says to him, if, if you are the son of God, then do this. And I got to tell you that this is Satan's attack. It's Satan's attack on Adam and Eve. You know, if you really are loved by God, then why would he be keeping something from you? They, Satan is always using this line of thing. If you're really a son, if you're really a daughter, if you're really his, then why would he be keeping this from you? Why would he keep from you this job? Why would he keep from you this money? Why would he keep from you this relationship? Why would he keep from you just having love? Why would he keep from you? Why? If you really are, then why don't you just take it? I mean, if you're, you're the son of God, you should be able to take it. And it's true. See, Satan's speaking to the son of God, and he's telling him, you are the son of God. You can do whatever you want. And it's true. He could. He could do that. And let's see how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now stop right there for a second. Oftentimes we go, okay, there's the problem. Satan, uh, the devil, uh, tempts us with this idea of providing for ourselves or, or what have you. And we just need to quote scripture and it, and it will be fine. But here's the thing. This is what Michael, Michael Wilcox says. He, said, he paraphrases what Jesus says. He says, you suggest that feeding my body may take precedence over obeying my God. But God has told men that they shall not live by bread alone. Therefore, I shall not do so. So Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And he quotes it back to Satan and he says, what God desires for man is that they would not be people who are feeding themselves and saying, and saying that this takes precedence over the reality of me obeying my God. And men and women, I have to tell you that feeding ourselves, and not just food, but food included, has become our God. Our God is our belly. Our desires are our, are our belly. Our world is replete with examples of this over and over and over again. Our world says your desires are who you are, and so therefore you should obey those desires. And Jesus says, as the second Adam, as being in the human race, as one who is identifying with the sins, with the, these transgressors, to be numbered with them, I must quote to you what God's word has said, and that is that I must obey him in spite of the fact that I'm really hungry, in spite of the fact that I'm really, really, really needing this thing. Satan says, just take it. Just do it. Go to verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time, 
and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, I will, uh, it will all be yours. Mike McKinley says, In essence, what the devil is offering to Jesus is a crown without a cross. Satan is offering to Jesus. He's saying, listen, you don't have to obey the Father. You don't have to do all that stuff. You can take a shortcut. You can have the crown without all the suffering. You can have the crown without all of, all of that stuff. Again, Michael Wilcox says, says, I'm sorry, I need to read this verse, verse 8. Jesus answers and says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Michael Wilcox says, You offer me universal power at the price of worshiping you, but God has told men that they are not to worship any but him. Therefore, I shall not worship you. Jesus recognizes what's happening here, and he says, universal power at the price of worshiping someone other than the true and the living God is not worth it. It is not worth it at all. And men and women, our world is constantly telling you, and we believe it, that we can have universal power or some type of power over our small domain in this world. It might be our home. It might be our mind. It might be our job. It might be in our relationships. But our world sells the lie that says you can have all of this power if you will just worship us. If you will just worship, if you will bow down and worship this, you will have everything at your fingertips. And Jesus responds and says, that's not what God would have me do. That's not what the Father would have me do. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The third temptation here, verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, he's baiting him, if you, if you really are the Son of God, then listen, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Satan is, is bringing a very real, real temptation to the Son of God, and he's telling him, if you really are the Son of God, then don't you want to listen to Psalm 91? See, Satan knows Scripture as well, and he's quoting from Psalm 91, and he's telling him, he's saying, yeah, but there's this Scripture here. And how many times do we take a Scripture, we rip it out of context, and we say, you know what? I'm just going to listen to the Scripture. Some of you are justifying sin in your life through a Scripture that you've misplaced. You have appropriated it improperly. You have used Scripture to be able to sin. And Satan will do that every time. He will twist the Word of God so that you feel like you can do what you want to do. Jesus sees right through it. Verse 12, and Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And again, Michael Wilcox says this. I'm quoting from him because I love these statements. He paraphrases Jesus' words and says, You propose that I should test his promises to suit my own convenience. But he has told men that they are not to test him in this way. Therefore, I shall not do so. You, you want me to test God so that I can have more convenience. These are the lies of the TV preachers oftentimes. Like, test God in this way and see if he's not going to give you a million dollars. If you believe it, it'll be true. Just believe that that's going to happen and it'll, it'll give you something here. There's so many people in our world today that are a part of this kind of name it and claim it thing. That say, I'm claiming this in Jesus' name. And essentially what they're doing is they're using a tool of Satan. They're taking a scripture out of context outside of the will of God, and they are saying that, God, hey, you need to provide this for me because I demanded it from you, because I said the right phrase. I said the right words. And Jesus says, I'm not putting the Lord my God to the test because he has told me not to. And again, he's quoting scripture to him. And this is also our issue. And we fail every time. Adam failed every time. Israel failed every time. And it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. There's two ways you can look at this. You can look at this and you can say, You know what? Jesus is my example. And let me just tell you something. If you ever end up at a church where they want to deny the idea of Jesus' payment for our sins by his blood on the cross. And all they want to tell you is to talk about Jesus as example. That is the wrong church. Get out and get out fast. And it's because of this. When you say Jesus as our example, essentially what you're saying is, if you're saying, I'm going to look at this passage and Jesus will be my example and I will accomplish this in and of myself, the problem is, is that we've already made all these mistakes. We're already further down that road. We've already gotten off on that off-ramp. We're already there. And the problem is, is that you're, you're saying, like, in my sin nature, as a son of Adam, like, I think that I can overcome all of the ages of sin, my sin nature and everything about me, and I will be perfect and I will make this happen. And the problem with that is that there's so many people in the church today that believe that somehow that Jesus is just their example, but he's not their savior. He's not their savior. Men and women, many of us walked in here today Believing that somehow we can become the Son of God in and of ourselves. That somehow we can transfer all of this disobedience to obedience. That somehow we can make this happen in and of ourselves. If we just white knuckle it enough, if I just buckle down and read my Bible a little more, if I just pray more, those are good things. But it will not save you. The reason why the scriptures and why prayer are so important is because they reveal to us something else, and that is Jesus. It reveals to you Jesus. 
It reveals to us this, that Jesus, even though he lives in perfect obedience, and he just proved it through this instance in the wilderness with Satan himself, overcoming all that Adam and Eve did, overcoming all that humanity has done, overcoming all that Israel has done, he enters into the baptismal waters and he is numbered with transgressors. He has been numbered with you and with me. He has put himself at risk for your sake. He has put himself in a line of people who were incredibly sinful and yet he is the true son of God. He is the one that will right every wrong he will wipe every tear from every eye. He is the one. And then ultimately, he is the one who has overcome Satan, sin, and death. And he does that, and he begins that through this instance here. By perfectly being obedient. It says in Philippians 2.8, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus does this for us. He has perfectly fulfilled what Adam was supposed to do. He has perfectly fulfilled what Israel was supposed to do. And he has perfectly fulfilled what you we're supposed to do. And when he perfectly fulfilled that, he went to the cross in spite of the fact that he had perfectly lived in that way. He went to the cross and he was crucified for your sin and for my sin. It has to be Jesus. Jesus has to be a part of the conversation. Without Jesus, you cannot have a relationship with God. Without Jesus, your life cannot be different. It has to be Jesus because he is the one. God says, this is my son. I'm well pleased with him. If you don't like him, then you don't like me. You're not a part of this thing. And so my plea to you is this, is that have you trusted in Jesus Christ as the one who's gone through every temptation that you have ever gone through or you will ever go through. Have you put your trust in that one? Have you truly trusted in him? Have you put a stake in the ground? I think we, we have so many people in our church that, have, that are toying with the idea of God but have not taken that step and said yes to Jesus. And yes, being, yes, Jesus, I see that I'm a sinner. That I need forgiveness. That I need grace, that I need mercy. I've, I keep saying this. But here's the thing. Every other religion lacks grace. You can't go to any other religion and receive grace for your sin. But Jesus takes all of your sin. It's called the great exchange. He takes all of everything that you've done, every wrong way that you've acted, everything that you have, that you know that you have shame for, and it dogs you. And he comes to you and he says, I can make you into a son or a daughter in spite of your sin. I paid for it. 
It was costly. It cost me everything, but I paid for it. Have you received it? And we get to come into the loving arms of a gracious and loving and merciful God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Putting a stake in the ground looks like this. It looks like saying, I want to let the people around me know that I've become a Christian. And I'm going to invite other Christians into my life to raise me as a disciple. Jesus doesn't call you to just start believing him in him. He, he calls you to become a disciple of him. You may have prayed a prayer. You may have walked an aisle. You may have even been baptized. But are you a disciple of him? Have you decided, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And then enter into that and be baptized because baptism is saying this, I'm a sinner and I need grace and I'm identifying with Jesus Christ by being baptized into the baptismal waters. It is as though I'm being buried with Christ and then I'm being raised with Christ as a result. It doesn't wash you. What it does is it shows that you're identifying with Jesus Christ and he commands it. Some of you need to put a stake in the ground. I have sense this. I don't know how many of you there are. I don't know how true this is. I just feel like I think there's people here that have not given their life to Jesus Christ in reality. You've been waiting around and I want you to stop. And Jesus is calling you to stop. He's the only one that you can trust in. Would you trust in him today? So uh, this morning, I just I want to invite you to just kind of during, uh, during the, the worship service here, like I'm just going to be standing right back here, right underneath the love Jesus thing. And um, if you need prayer for any reason or, or you got something that you, you just want to deal with or maybe you haven't made that step, I want to invite you to that this morning. I'm just going to be standing there during the music and, or you can catch up with me after service, but do something today. Put a stake in the ground. Jesus fulfilled everything that you never did. And he was glad to do it on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to revel in right now just over how you've saved us. There's many of us in this room that have just that haven't made the step. There's many of us who have not not moved in this. We have not been moved. Lord, I'm praying that they would take that step and put their faith in you, recognizing their own sin asking for forgiveness and trusting you as their Savior who's fulfilled all of the law in our place. And so, Lord, I'm just praying that you'd break our hearts for this, Lord, that you'd move in us, that you would cause us to, to take steps of growth, 
to become disciples of you if we're not. God, I pray that you'd move in our church here this morning. Lord, may your message be clear from your word. Lord, let my confusing words fall away. May you be seen as glorious, as gracious, as merciful, as kind. And we ask that you do this this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.